Remain standing for our sermon text from Philippians 2. Again, pay close attention to God's inerrant word. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look, look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the Word made flesh who died for us. Help us tonight to meditate on this passage that you inspired through the Apostle Paul so that we can grow in our faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. After the sermon, we're going to sing another song. And then there'll be a closing prayer and threefold amen. And I encourage you to leave the sanctuary in silence uh, to make sure we don't quickly forget the things that we have been thinking about, singing about, and hearing from God's Word. And then, of course, feel free to fellowship once you're out of the sanctuary. But for a minute or so after the service, just meditate and reflect on the gospel that we have been singing about and praying about and now that I am preaching about. If you were to make a list of the attributes of God, would humility make that list? Do you think of God as being humble? We often talk about God's glory, His holiness, His honor, His majesty, His righteousness and wisdom and strength, and sovereignty, and His perfection, and omnipotence, and omniscience, His eternality, His incomprehensibility, His unchangeableness, His mercy, His patience, His goodness. But how often do we talk about God's humility? 
Do you think of God as being humble? The natural tendency of sinful humans is to create God in our own image. We have to constantly guard against doing that. And when we create God, imagine God in our own image, we never create a humble God because we are not naturally humble. We are naturally proud. And so naturally, our fallen imaginations don't imagine a humble God. But the good news is that God is not like us. God has humbled Himself so that He might exalt us, save us. God's humility drove Him to become one of us, and then, as one of us, to bear our sins in His body on the cross. The cross is the climax of history. It's God's crowning achievement. Humility, therefore, we might say, is the crowning attribute of God in history. The good news is that the God of the Bible is not a God of human imagination. He's not the product of man's making. And we can thank God for that. Mankind never would have invented the God of Scripture. Because that God, the God that is revealed to us in the pages of the Bible, the one true God, the living God, the Creator of heaven and earth, is a humble God who came to earth as an embryo and went from the cradle to the cross in the form of a human. He received His crown only after He had taken up His cross. Our sermon text from Philippians 2 celebrates God's humility. It celebrates God's humility with a song, with a poem. Philippians 2, 6-11 has all the markings of an ancient hymn. Some Bibles, these verses, verses 6 or 5 to 11, are formatted to show their poetic nature. And this poetic passage is often called the Carmen Christi, which is Latin for the hymn of Christ, the song of Christ. That's because this song tells the story, the big story, of the second person of the Trinity. The story of of His taking on human flesh and becoming a man, becoming one of us. His dying on a cross. His rising from the dead on the third day. And His ascending to the right hand of the Father in glory. It's the story of the humility and the exaltation of the Son of God. Before we study Paul's Christ hymn in verses 6 to 11, we need to consider the context. We need to understand how the Carmen Christi fits into Paul's flow of thought. So, with your Bibles open, let's look at the famous Christ hymn in its context. Now, the theme verse for the entire book of Philippians is arguably at least. Verse 27 in chapter 1. 
Philippians 1.27. It says, only let your conduct or your manner of life, only let your conduct be worthy of the Gospel of Christ. So we'll stop there for a second. So Paul's saying, do this one thing. Let your conduct, the way you live your life, be worthy of the Gospel to which you've been called. The Gospel that saved you. Let your life reflect the goodness of the Gospel that redeemed you. In particular, let your manner of life reflect Christ and His manner of life. Paul's exhortation to the Philippians in this letter especially in this portion of the letter, is be like Christ. Imitate Jesus. Let the mind that was in Christ be lived out in you. Let it be in your mind. Let your conduct live up to Christ and His Gospel. And why? What's the reason for this exhortation? We'll look at the rest of verse 27 in Philippians 1. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So you can see how it's a good theme verse. It covers a lot of ground. Paul's concern is Christian unity in the gospel. How do Christians live lives that are worthy of the Gospel of Christ? Paul says is by living in unity with one another. By standing firm together in one spirit. One mind. Striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel. And then in Philippians 2, Paul basically gets more specific and fleshes this out for us. There we see that the unity Paul has in mind is a unity that manifests itself, first of all, in humility. Humbleness. Paul's logic goes like this. Unity among believers is possible where there is humility among believers. Unity is not possible without humility. Humility is the pathway to unity. Look what Paul says in the first four verses of Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. In verse 2, Paul exhorts the Philippians to complete, to fill out, to fill up his joy. How? By dwelling in unity. Be like-minded. Have the same love. Be of one accord. Then in verses 3 and 4, Paul tells them how to do this. Verses 3 and 4 describe what Christ exemplified in His life. 
they describe what Christian love and Christian unity look like on the ground. They look like humility. Or we could say they look like Jesus. Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Look out not just for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? The Christian life is a life of humility from beginning to end. And we don't just learn this from Paul. We learn it from Jesus in the Gospels. In particular, we learn it from His Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. The Sermon on the Mount is Christ's kingdom manifesto. It lays out what the Christian life should look like. Do you want to be a follower of Jesus? Do you call yourself a follower of Jesus? Then here's what your life should look like. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And do you remember what the first thing Jesus says is in that sermon, in that manifesto? The very first thing out of His mouth. The first sentence. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit means being humble. The blessedness of the Christian life hinges on humility. If you're not characterized by humility, you're not characterized by the Gospel of Christ. And you will not be characterized by a blessed life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. And Paul describes what humility looks like in these verses. Humility is having a lowliness of mind. It's counting others more significant than yourself. Or at least their needs. Humility is putting interests of others first before your own. And when we exercise this kind of humility, we are imitating God. You see, humility is what God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been practicing toward one another for eternity and in history. The three persons of the Trinity have never done anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, each one of them puts the other puts the others first, seeks to glorify the others, to put their interests before his own. Humility is also what our triune God exercises toward us. Toward, they exercise it toward one another, but they exercise it toward us, toward you, toward his peop- their people. Jesus obeyed His Father to the point of death on a cross. Why? Because Jesus was not only looking out for His own interests, He was looking out for the interests of His Father and the interests of you. And this is Paul's logic in Philippians 2. See, Paul's not exhorting us toward humility in a vacuum. He's not saying you must be humble because being humble 
is a good thing in itself. No, he's saying you must be humble. You must humble yourself because even God humbled Himself. You must become a humble servant because God became a humble servant. You must empty yourself, pour yourself out because God emptied Himself. You must take up your cross and die because God took up His cross and endured death for you. You serve a humble God. And if God humbled Himself, how much more should we humble ourselves? If humble servanthood is good enough for God, then surely it's good enough for us. So Paul says in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Now up in verse 2, Paul uses the word mind twice. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now in verse 5, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. One translation says, have this mind, because it is a verb here. It's the verb form of mind. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, the mind I want you to have is the same mind that Jesus had when he was on the earth. It was a mind of humility. That's what you'll find when you read here the Christ story. And then Paul, and then Paul launches into his song, his Carmen Christi, his hymn of Christ in verse 6. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, here is one of the few places where it's good. Well, let me just say this. Here is one of the places where it's good to compare translations. And it's one of the few places where I'm going to take issue a little bit with the New King James Version. Other translations do a better job of this verse. And since it's so important, I think we need to talk about it. A better way to translate verse 6 is like this. Who, being in His very nature God, or being in the form of God, either one is fine. Who, being in His very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to His own advantage. I'll read it again. Who, being in His very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to His own advantage. That's a very, very important verse. When Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, he's saying that before Jesus became a man, He existed in eternity in the form of God. Jesus existed before He became a baby in Mary's womb. Jesus has always existed as an equal with God the Father. Equal in substance or being. In power and eternality. And all those attributes. 
verse 6, is saying that though Jesus existed eternally in the form of God, He did not regard that equality with God the Father as something to be wielded for His own gain or advantage. So, for example, the translation of verse 6 in the ESV or the NIV actually reflects the best scholarship. The NIV says, who being in the very nature of God, his very nature God, did not consider equality with God something, something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus never used his godness for his own gain. He never played his God card as a way of trumping the evil that was being done against him. He could have. He had the power to do it, but he didn't. He didn't grasp for that power that was already His. Even though He was in the form of God, even though He existed forever as the second person of the triune God, and still did and still does exist as that, Jesus did not count that Godness as a thing to be used for His gain. Verse 7, But He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Some translations say made himself nothing or made himself of no reputation. Those are all good. But the the New King James Version and the ESV get the translation precisely accurate. He emptied himself. Poured himself out. And when we think about it this way, when we translate it this way, emptied himself, we can hear better the echo of of Isaiah 53 that we just read together. It's printed in your liturgy if you want to refer to it. Isaiah 53 is the famous passage where Isaiah predicts the suffering and death of the future Messiah, the Christ, on behalf of His people. And Paul knew this passage well, obviously. And in his Christ hymn, in his Carmen Christi, here in Philippians 2, Paul uses many of the words and phrases and concepts from Isaiah 53 in the last part of Isaiah 52. He echoes Isaiah 52 and 53 in about ten different places throughout his hymn. Scholars have agreed and found about ten or so places where he seems to be pretty clearly actually echoing Isaiah 52 and 53. And the first echo comes here in verse 7. Philippians 2, verse 7, where Paul says that Jesus emptied Himself. Verse 7 is an echo of Isaiah 53, 12, which is toward the end of that passage we read. It says that He poured Himself out unto death. Those are Isaiah's words. God's word through the prophet Isaiah. It's in the fourth line from the bottom in your liturgy. The fourth line from the bottom in that responsive reading from Isaiah. So Isaiah 53.12 envisions Christ pouring Himself out, emptying Himself unto death. And here in Philippians 2.7, Paul says that Christ indeed emptied Himself or poured Himself out even unto death. So why, why is Paul echoing this famous prophecy? Because Paul wants to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus is the suffering servant throughout 
the book of Isaiah, particularly the, the last half of Isaiah. Jesus is the substitutionary atonement, the substitute that Isaiah envisions. Jesus is the one who pours Himself out and suffers and dies for His people, for the sinners, for the many that God will call to Himself. And what's interesting, another interesting thing about the book of Philippians is that Paul even goes on to apply this same language to himself down in verse 17 of Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 17. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. You see, Paul modeled his ministry after the example or ministry of Christ. Because Jesus poured Himself out for His people, Paul would let himself be poured out for God's people. If humble sacrifice was good enough for Jesus, the God-man, the Messiah, it was good enough for Paul. And so we see here, humility is emptying yourself. Pouring yourself out for the sake of others. For the benefit of others. Verse 8, Philippians 2, verse 8 says, And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isaiah 53 says He poured His life out unto death. Paul explains further. Even death on a cross. Jesus Christ did not die on a cross just in order to be a good example. That's part of it. It is a good example of sacrificial love. But that's not the only reason. In fact, it's not even the primary reason that He died on the cross. He submitted, he submitted Himself to death on the cross mainly, fundamentally, most importantly, to take upon Himself the curse that belonged to you and to me. He died on the cross in the place of what Isaiah calls, who Isaiah calls the sinners, or in another place or two, the many. On the cross, Jesus in one sense became sin, Paul says, in the sense that He became a sin offering. And our sins were imputed to Him. They were counted against Him. He became your sin and my sin. If He had not done this, if He had not done this, you and I would be dead in our sins forever with no hope. You would, and I would be in bondage to sin and death and Satan and hell eternally with no hope of rescue. But the Gospel of Isaiah says this in verse 12. Isaiah 53, 12. Again, that's, those are the last four lines or so of our responsive reading. Isaiah 53.12 For He poured out His life unto death. 
and he was numbered with the sinners. And he bore the sin of many, or the many, and he took it upon himself for the sinners. Jesus poured out his life unto death so that you would not have to face eternal death in hell. Jesus was numbered with the sinners so that you would not have to be numbered with the sinners forever in hell. Jesus bore the sin of the many sinners so that the many, the sinners, the elect, for whom Christ died, would not have to carry their sin, bear their sin all the way to hell and bear it there forever. Jesus encountered God's wrath for you while you were an enemy of His, while you were a sinner, so that you would not have to encounter God's wrath forever in hell. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him, in the One who was made sin, but the one who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus substitute, substituted Himself in your place. On the cross, Jesus satisfied God's wrath that was headed your way. It was coming right at you. That's what it means when Paul and John say that Jesus is the propitiation for your sins. He, Jesus propitiated God's wrath for you. That means He satisfied God's wrath by absorbing it. By taking it on Himself. God's wrath was coming. On the cross, Christ averted God's wrath from you to Himself. He didn't just avert it into oblivion into outer space and sweep it under the rug. He, it went from you and me to Him. In the death of Jesus on the cross, He absorbed the condemnation and judgment that you deserved. On the cross, He who was without sin, who was perfect in every way, became sin for you, a sinner. The Father treated Jesus on the cross as a shameful sinner so that He could treat you as righteous and holy. As one of His children. Finally, we come to the last three verses. Verses 9-11 to in Philippians 2. Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul connects, if you'll if you look, you can see Paul connects verse 8 to verse 9 with what? A therefore. Why has God highly exalted Jesus why has He given Jesus a name that is above every name? Well, the answer is in verse 8. 
Because Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name because Jesus humbled Himself and died as the Father told Him to do. We see in these verses a great truth that runs through Scripture, but that is crystal clear here. And that great truth is this. Death, death to self, always gives way to glory. Or another way of saying it is true glory, real glory, godly glory, only happens on the other side of self-sacrifice, self-denial, self-death. That's just the way it is with God. That's the nature of the Gospel. The upside-down nature of the Gospel. For Christ to be highly exalted by His Father. For Christ to be given the name that's above every name. He first had to die. Because true glory is always preceded by death. Sacrifice. Death lays the foundation for glory. There's no way around this. Now there's worldly glory that does not need death. But with God, with the Gospel, in God's economy, there is no shortcut. There's only one road to glory And the road is called death. In verses 10 and 11, Paul uses language from a different part of Isaiah that we didn't read and we don't need to turn there. It's Isaiah 45. In the first part of the Christ hymn, we heard echoes from Isaiah 52 and 53. And now at the end, we hear from Isaiah 45 where the Lord was making the point that He is the only God. In Isaiah 45, verse 22, He says, For I am God, and there is no other. And then in Isaiah 45, 23, the next verse, He says, Every knee shall bow to Me. Every tongue shall swear allegiance to Me. This is Yahweh in the Old Testament saying this about Himself through the prophet Isaiah. Every knee is going to bow to Me. Every tongue is going to confess allegiance to Me, Yahweh says. Think about the implications of that. Astoundingly, in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, Paul takes these words from Isaiah 45 and applies them to this man. Jesus. Isaiah 45 makes it very clear. Very explicit that it, it, these words only apply to Yahweh. And yet Paul says they apply to Jesus. Isaiah 45 says every knee will bow bow only to Yahweh. And yet Paul says that every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. The point Paul is making here at the end of his Christ song is that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Jesus is not just a man. He is God. He's the God-man. And what is true of Yahweh is true of Jesus. But that goes both ways. What is true of Jesus is true of Yahweh. If Jesus is humble, then God is humble. 
Another thing that God says in Isaiah in that passage is that He will not share His glory with anyone. With no one I will share my glory. And yet here, He is sharing it with Jesus. This must mean that Jesus is God. On the last day, everyone will stand before the throne and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every believer and every unbeliever, every angel and every demon, every one and everything will bow the knee to King Jesus one day. Some will bow the knee in terror and dread only. Many others will bow the knee in praise and worship. Those are the two categories that every human falls into. Every human falls into one of those two categories. If you were God, would you do what God the Son did? Would you do what Jesus did? Would you join yourself to your corrupt, fallen creation that's in rebellion against you and become a bondservant, a slave, become a man, and humble yourself to the point of dying on a Roman cross, which was more shameful than it was painful. If, you're, if you were God, would you be humble? Would one of your attributes be humility? Well, you see, the God of Scripture is a humble God. And the reason I asked that question in that kind of a maybe provocative way is because it forces you, it forces us to ask ourselves what kind of God we imagine. Are we creating a God in our own image? Or are we submitting our minds to the God of Scripture? Because if you, if you don't do that, then you'll imitate the wrong God. You'll imitate the God of your own making. And we don't want to do that. We want to imitate and follow the true God for who He is with a biblical understanding of who He is. Augustine once said, God has humbled Himself and yet man is still proud. How is it that God humbled Himself to the point of death on a cross and yet we can still be quite proud? How is it that God can empty Himself and yet we can be very full of ourselves? How is it that Jesus did not use His Godness to His advantage, and yet we so often put our interests before the interests of others. God took up His cross and He endured death on it for you. And now He is calling you to take up your cross and die to yourself on behalf of Christ, on behalf of His people. 
He is calling you to live out the Gospel that has saved you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are the body of this Christ, this Messiah. Which is to say that you have been bought with the price. You have been bought by His blood. You've been bought by the blood of your Lord and your God, Jesus Christ. So imitate your Lord and your God. Do nothing out of rivalry or selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Father, thank You again for Your Word and thank You for the blood of Jesus that saves us. Holy Spirit, cause these words that You inspired to go deep into our hearts, to be planted there, to grow deep roots, and to produce much fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.